Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Android Bytes, powered by Asper. I'm your host, David Reddick, and every week I'm joined by my co-host, Michelle Rahman, to talk about the wide world of Android, and honestly, anything that could potentially be interesting or otherwise technically relevant to what's happening with Android in the news or with devices, or, you know, just because it strikes our fancy that particular week. This intro keeps changing every time I do it. This week, we have a couple of special guests to discuss what I think is probably an under-discussed part of Android, which are extensible computing platforms and how they relate to the Android OS and how Android can leverage them. Michelle, would you like to introduce our guests? Thanks, David. So today I have on the show Braden Farmer and Juan Carlos Bagnell, who is also known as some gadget guy on tech websites. So uh, why don't you both introduce yourselves briefly? So I'm Braden. I've been an Android app developer for a little over eight years now, both professionally in the Android app development space and also after hours working on uh, kind of the more niche aspects of Android app development. So that's me. And I'm Juan Carlos Bagnell, and I've been a cranky, mobility-focused tech nerd since the early days of BlackBerry and Windows Mobile Pocket PCs. That's probably all that really matters to the conversation that we're going to (laughs) have. Yeah, so as David mentioned, today's topic is going to focus on the synergy between using your smartphone and your PC. For many years, the dream has been, can you carry a single device in your pocket that does everything? It's your phone, it's your PC, it's your tablet, maybe. There's been many attempts to make this a reality over the years, the vast majority of which have failed. There are some existing attempts that are still ongoing from various OEMs. And recently, we've seen a resurgence in some of these desktop mode, is a common way to refer to them, experiences. So I wanted to kind of do a rundown of the history of some of these desktop mode experiences, where some of them failed, how Android has been catering to them or failing at catering to them, and what the future is going to be like for these large screen desktop mode experiences. Just for a bit of background, for those of you who don't know, desktop mode experiences have been around for quite a long time. In the early days, especially in the most infamous example being the Motorola Atrix in 2011, That was probably the first Android device to attempt to let you use your phone as a PC. Um, You were able to purchase an optional dock accessory that, depending on what you bought, the base model, I think, is $129 for the desktop dock. Or you could buy, like, a laptop chassis for $499. It was quite expensive. And this was 2011. Android was really, really, really in its beginning stages at that point. This phone ran Android 2.2 Froyo out of the box vast majority of apps were not optimized for large devices. In fact, in last week's episode, we talked about Honeycomb, which was the first OS optimized for tablets, and 2.2 came before 3.0. So like this Atrix, you were running basically phone apps on a large display, and you can imagine the experience was not very good. There were a few other attempts along the way. There was the Asus Pad Phone, which you basically put into a 10-inch tablet, and then you tried to use your phone apps in this expanded display. It was a little, a little is the putting it kindly awkward to use, but it was just one of many approaches that phone manufacturers took to realize the dream. As you could tell, none of these really caught on. And I'd like to ask all of your opinions. Why do you think these early desktop experiences fail to catch on? So I will wax for a moment about the Atrix. Juan Carlos, I don't know if you remember this thing, but I remember when it came out, I was so jazzed. 
by the idea. And then I saw how much it cost. And then I saw the first review of it. And I was like, well, I'm glad I didn't go buy that on day one. I believe the doc ran some strange Linux distro. I'm not sure who created it or if it was even Motorola, but it was so, so ahead of its time, but it showed that interest was already there. Everybody loved the idea that you could have basically a single chipset or application processor and use that to create either virtually or as a function of some kind of extension layer, a separate operating system that would run on the device effectively or the separate experience, I should say, even if it is not a discrete operating system. In Etrix's case, I believe it was a separate OS. So the thing that really failed these, like you said, Michelle, is the app compatibility was just not there. Nothing was optimized at this point. The other side was just really that the hardware wasn't even really up to the task at that point. We were talking still about dual core processors, probably way, way back in the bucket. I forget if the Atrix had a Qualcomm chip or if that was still a Texas Instruments chipset in that phone. Either way, we were talking just systems that were so far behind what you could do on a laptop as far as the hardware capabilities that they were doomed to fail, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree because we're also talking about this from, I think the desktop mode as it stands today actually represents a consumer positive. And Motorola of its time, when we were talking about something like the Atrix, I had to do the conversion. The, the laptop dock was $499, which in today's dollars is like $650 for a folding clamshell that you can't do anything with on its own. So even when I look at like one of my next docs, the prices on these things are so much more consumer accessible and so much friendlier than what it was at the time. And Motorola's focus was so much more old school IBM business gray that that's what their target was. I think the idea was you start getting these out into IT department's hands and they'll create custom applications for employees and that way, you know, your workforce on this brand new idea of what a smartphone could be, these phones are likely being issued by the company, not a consumer facing fun kind of product. I think the closest we got in those early days to anything somewhat successful wasn't even phones. It was the Asus transformer line where it made so much sense to people. I have a tablet and now I can connect it to a keyboard and, oh, you know, this kind of works and it kind of works for some of the things that I might want to do laptopy sort of. But at the same time, to David's point, the processing power, the app compatibility, the polish of the experience, and those docs were also prohibitively expensive when you tried to balance the family finances against getting just a regular laptop or getting an exotic tablet. Those conversations, I'm sure, didn't go well 10 years ago. I also want to add that the Motorola Atrix, it ran kind of a Linux distro, as David mentioned. And at the time, Linux on ARM wasn't quite all the way there, the way it is now. And I wonder with the price to value ratio, if what you got out of the laptop dock didn't really quite match up, especially with like, I think it shipped with like Mozilla Firefox as a web browser, and then not really quite sure what else it shipped with. And just the fact that Linux on the desktop, at least back in 2011, you couldn't just run any Windows application. Like the application support just wasn't there for Linux to begin with. And then add on the Android app support, there just wasn't enough value there to justify people going all in for what was a very niche product at the time. Well, I, I completely agree. And to that point, I had to look this up too. I'm, I'm just going to keep looking things up for us on the show. Tegra 2. And I don't think you know, people who are really into smartphones today remember all of the compatibility issues that we had of, was it running a Samsung ARM SOC? Was it running a Qualcomm ARM SOC Tegra? 
you had to be able to code specifically. We would have app compatibility guides. There would be HD versions of the apps based on resolution. It was kind of a mess for someone who was looking to do something a bit more advanced with a phone, having to dig through all of these different ideas of compatibility and polish and hardware and features. And I feel like that's always going to be a massive barrier to getting mindshare into the general consumer gadget experience. Yeah. So I think all three of you brought up this as one of the major limiting factors of the Atrix was that the dock relied on a custom Linux distribution and Linux on ARM support back then was very lackluster. So over the years, we've seen some vendors approach this by developing a custom operating system or extending what they're working on so that the underlying operating system of the device could be extended to a larger display. Microsoft once experimented with Continuum on several Lumia devices that would basically extend Windows 10 Mobile to an external display using a dock. It wasn't the proper Windows 10 experience you were used to back then, but it was similar. And then there were rumors that Google wanted to merge Android and Chrome OS into a project that was codenamed Andromeda. That fizzled out and we never actually got any sort of merger, but there were rumors that this was happening. And it looks like for a while, vendors did experiment with trying to unify the actual operating system that was running on smartphones and desktops. So I wanted to ask all of you guys, what do you think of these attempts to unify the experience? Do you think that's an approach that should have been explored more, or do you think it was doomed to fail? With Microsoft's recent efforts for porting Windows 10 to ARM devices, coming out with Snapdragon-powered Windows 10 PCs, I just feel like Continuum and Windows Phone just came a few years too early for that. The pieces of the puzzle were there, they were just there separate times, right? You've got Continuum on Windows Mobile, which presented what looked like a full-fledged Windows 10 user interface, even though it didn't actually run proper Windows applications. And then Windows Phone died off. And then pretty much immediately after that, we have Microsoft stepping up their efforts to really support Windows 10 ARM devices. And I just feel like if we had both of those pieces of the puzzle there at the same time, that would have been a massive value add. Like imagine where Microsoft would be today had they focused their efforts on proper Windows 10 support, you know, proper x86 on ARM translation support back when they were doing Continuum. Yeah, that era of Microsoft still breaks my heart because I think it was the right move for Microsoft because you had all of these different departments. We were seeing the end of the Balmer initiatives and we were getting into this new like Windows as service and getting every Microsoft uh, program and service onto anything that can run any kind of operating system. And I, I mean, I, I feel this speaks to the idea really hasn't failed because we keep experimenting with this idea. But we keep running into exactly what Braden was talking about. It's like you need that perfect synergy of the right executives at the right time with the right technologies. And the Lumia 950 with the Snapdragon A10 was not the right hardware to make that push. It was a really exciting software period where Continuum could have been really cool. And I think we saw like on the HP Elite, that experience was demonstrably better when you just improved some of that. But by then, the damage had already been done and Microsoft was already pulling out of their own phone initiative. And so that one instance of it withers on the vine. But then you pick up a Duo and then you look at a Surface Pro and you can kind of see some of this idea of where another Microsoft mobile cell phone powered tablet initiative could go. And it, it at least leaves me hopeful that we're not going to keep giving up on this idea. We're not going to completely abandon this idea. We're going to keep trying until we finally get that hardware, software, ecosystem combination 
that works for people to understand that this is something that could help them out. I had honestly forgot Continuum even existed. So uh, that goes to show, you know, I think that is another recurring theme here that's interesting is that you see a lot of momentum and sputtering to get these experiences out there. There has not been any one partner who has been continuously invested in creating that experience. Samsung is as close as we have right now. And even then, Samsung's commitment to DEX is questionable. We don't know what the future of DEX is. And I think that is another huge reason we've seen these platforms fail to catch on. Developers look at it, they look at how serious either the platform or device manufacturer is, and they say, you don't look very serious. Because I've looked at DEX and I know what it looks like, and I have used it a few times. The interface is good, it makes sense. It's laid out in a way that's logical. In general, the functionality it provides is interesting. But without that kind of groundswell support from the developer ecosystem and also from power users who were actually able to create use cases and workflows inside that experience, which they can then share with everybody else, which is how you really build that grassroots movement, it's very difficult to get momentum behind these platforms until you can do something, until you show somebody, here is how I edited this podcast using Samsung Dex. Nobody is going to really pay super close attention because at the end of the day for a consumer, it still looks like a bit of a science experiment. Right. And I think the problem broadly can be summarized in two areas. First of all, there was a huge architectural fragmentation that basically prevented many of these devices from actually running proper desktop operating systems and applications in a way they could. Because under the hood of Android devices, the Linux kernel, right? But because of the way Android is distributed, the Linux kernel ends up shipping on a device is a fork of a fork of a fork of a fork. And it's just like completely out of tree code, like some thousands, thousands of lines of code. So if you were to try to boot a proper desktop Linux distribution on an Android device, come across many issues. But over the time, Google has worked on reducing that kernel fragmentation and the Android common kernel is much more in line with the mainline Linux kernel than it used to be. And if you look at things like the Pixel 6, which recently made waves in the news that a developer was able to boot proper Linux distributions and even Windows 10 on ARM through a VM on a Pixel 6, I think something like that proves that a lot of the architectural challenges that prevented your Android smartphone from running proper desktop applications, of which there are many on Linux distributions. That has slowly gone away, and I think that's one of the major areas where things have improved. On the other end, there's the software support. OEMs, they're not the ones in control of Android. They don't dictate what ends up in AOSP or the ecosystem. When they implement their own proprietary desktop solutions, they have to rely on app developers actually supporting it. But then that leads to developers supporting one ecosystem versus another, and it's just not very uniform. So Google over the years has had to have platform support and new features that actually make it worthwhile to support these experiences. I wanted to ask all of you, like, what do you think is the future of these kind of desktop experiences? Do you think that we're going to be seeing more Android-focused experiences, or do you think we'll see something like Samsung's Linux on Dex, which was short-lived, but now that I've talked about the possibilities of running full Linux operating systems on your device, you know, do you think that's something we'll be seeing more of in the future? You know, something that a lot of people have been asking for is, why doesn't Google allow Chrome OS to be projected onto a display when you plug your Android phone in? 
to me, it doesn't make any sense at all that Google has removed hardware level ability to plug a USB-C cable into your monitor and have it project onto a display. And especially, like you said, with Android 13 and its virtualization capabilities, like it's a no-brainer that ideally Google would want to take Chrome OS and make it project onto a display with your Pixel smartphone. There has been some recent developments that Google has been doing on the Chrome OS front with app streaming where on your Pixel smartphone, you'll eventually be able to stream apps from your Pixel smartphone to your Chrome OS device in an interface that kind of looks similar to desktop mode. You've got your app menu at the bottom and then the streamed app from your phone will pop up on screen. That approach that Google's taking with app streaming is an interesting one, but I would love to see, and I think the pieces of the puzzle are coming together for Google to support just running full-blown Chrome OS and you plug in your Pixel phone to monitor. I would love to see that happen. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I just think we've done too good of a job commercially training consumers to have a phone experience, which is very basic in communication and consumption based. And then you can kind of play around with the tablet experience and then you really need to have a laptop experience. And then there's also the desktop experience and the amount of effort that's gone into training that market would need to be disrupted to get people to consider some of the changes in their behavior. I push back and I kind of bristle at techies because I kind of feel we're the people that should be game for more experiments and for playing around and for finding these cool new things. I'm not expecting my great aunt to start trying to replace her known compute experience with a phone and a next dock or a portable display or something like that. So we've got to get overcome that level of consumer education that benefits the companies. And you have to have companies that are going to be brave enough to disrupt their own business models. If you really get successful at presenting the benefits of a desktop mode, you have to know that there's going to be a corresponding shift in tablet or laptop sales if your company manages all of those kinds of products. And on the flip side, if you don't have tablets and laptops that you're trying to sell, you need to be able to convince your superiors internally at your phone manufacturing job that it's going to be worth the additional development costs that go into a phone to really work out the software and to advertise the software and position it as a benefit that you're really gonna sell more phones doing that. And right now, I think we're all stuck in a holding pattern. No one really wants to be big or public or first with something that's kind of potentially disrupting to this understood market. And I think we're gonna end up being stuck in this kind of a holding pattern until either someone comes in as a disruptor or until it all just kind of ebbs away. And we really start losing those kinds of features. And I think it's a shame because I think we've missed out. I mean, we're talking about desktop modes in a very sort of traditional computing kind of way, but just the idea of utilizing a second display on your phone has so many incredible and specific practical advantages that we've never really had a chance to explore. A gaming phone that plugs into a TV and offers you a console-like organization for your games. Doesn't need to have a full-blown desktop operating system, but that would be resolution-aware, TV-aware, and then you'd be able to really benefit from a specific kind of a feature that applies to the phone that you just bought. Or a Sony crazy camera phone, you plug it into a monitor, and then all of the RAW files that you have get pulled up in a Lightroom-like environment, and you can really go to work directly from that kind of a setup. We've missed out on those feature-specific kinds of applications because we've all been too nervous to try like the general compute, the general desktop mode. I think that's a really great perspective on Carlos, because those two examples in particular 
are ones that, like you said, don't rely on that traditional desktop computing paradigm to be realized. Because I think with that traditional paradigm, you do have some issues that still come up. Number one of which, when I think about it from a hardware perspective, I am like, you're going to destroy the battery on that phone <laughs> for being plugged in all day. Your battery health is just going to get annihilated. Things going to get hot. You have issues there in terms of hardware use, whereas something like Nintendo Switch, that kind of form factor, you may only be plugging in it's the TV for a couple hours at a time. Otherwise, it's always with you. It's a true mobile-first device. You're enabling a secondary use case there. You're not trying to make it the end-all, be-all of gaming. You're taking something that's really good in its native form factor, and you're giving it extensibility in a way that's useful to the customer. And that use case first approach to extending computing power of devices makes so much more sense to me because you're able to tailor narrowly to what the device is going to do. In the case of gaming, you know what you're going to be thinking about? Frame rate. That's all you're going to be thinking about, actually. You're just going to be thinking about locking in that performance. And so you can really target, for example, if you decide, all right, I want to do an Android device, but it's going to boot up Linux on a separate partition or whatever it is when it gets plugged into a machine, something super lightweight. That way I can ensure that that use case is really well accounted for. Whereas if your goal is to create a system that can not only be a TV gaming device, but also a full desktop OS with a browser and apps and multi-window functionality, you're creating a whole other product effectively and it's trying to do a million different things. So I And it interrupts other product right. sales. Yeah. And exactly. it gets really disruptive. The only thing I was going to add is, is to your point, we learn the solutions to some of those problems in ways that don't ever make it to solving the problem. It's always been a travesty to me that I plug one of my desktop mode phones into a dock and then that battery is constantly like trickle ebb charging. It dips and it charges and it dips and it charges and that's hell on a battery. But then I can go and pick up a Sony that has no real specific interest in desktop or any other type of multi or game console types of performance. And they've got features that can power the phone directly without charging your battery. And you're like, we've never been able to get those two technologies in the same phone to really benefit the end user. We keep playing these other games. Like I've got a dock that allows me to not charge my phone when I plug it into the dock. And you're like, I get it, but that feels like such a backwards way to solve that problem when we could be trying to make the phone better. And if you're talking about a gaming phone, like I think the ROG also does this too, but Sony Xperia was the company that really pushed it forward. If I'm playing a game, I can say, don't charge my battery, just use the power cable to keep the phone running. That's exactly what I need. That's absolutely, I mean, mission critical on a desktop, laptop style compute environment and I've never been able to get it. And again, it goes back to your point, David, we keep stop starting. It's like trying to teach someone how to drive stick shift. We're constantly revving the engine and installing, and we've never been able to just keep iterating so that we can learn from our mistakes and really improve the experience over time. Yeah, and I think that gets into the next question here, which is how these devices talk to the external systems that they're working with. This has been, to me, the biggest practical challenge to adoption of these things because it takes away the idea once you introduce a cable or a dock or this kind of interface that somebody has to got to have the right connectivity you're creating a roadblock that many people will just say eh, not worth it it's a little too fussy so i will pose this question because i think it is an interesting one when we talk about how these devices will talk to an external display, 
we think in terms of wires, but wireless display standards still exist. Miracast is still out there. Microsoft is basically the sole party supporting it at this point, but they do. And it's not the only wireless display standard. Obviously, Apple has proprietary wireless display standards for its devices. And I think that probably there are some implementations that exist open source that can do some of this that I assume that some people on the show can discuss. But what do we think about how actually devices talk to other external devices, whether it be a display or a laptop dock, or, you know, it could be another accessory like a camera. Because I'm really curious there what the evolution looks like and the new use cases we could see enabled with these extendable systems without having these wires. Whenever you bring up the subject of wireless display mirroring, lag always has to come into the conversation. And if you ever tried using your mouse or keyboard with a computing device that's projecting wirelessly, like there's very noticeable lag. It's, it's very bad. It, pretty much kills the usability with the upside being it's a heck of a lot more convenient to just wirelessly cast your display instead of dealing with dongles or docks or whatnot. But one technology that has caught my eye recently is the millimeter wave stuff. There's a device out there. It's called the Hypermere. I think this one's called. It operates off of 60 gigahertz millimeter wave technology, and it basically eliminates that latency. So if that technology can make it more into the mainstream, I think you have a win-win right there with the convenience of wireless display mirroring while also eliminating that lag. And then you just have to solve for, well, how do you keep your device charged after that? To kind of go along with that, though, I also feel like it's kind of on us techies to maybe not be so cranky about cables. It's one of the things that I think is interesting. We're at a time right now where we've been talking about the improvements to processing power and software development and kernels and fragmentation. And one of the things that I think was holding back phone desktop modes was literally the evolution of the laptop. I mean, how many, especially now in a work from home kind of environment, how many people have gotten way savvier about taking their work issued laptop and plugging it into some kind of hub and then getting a multi-monitor experience or being able to connect to other accessories or being able to throw content to a TV. And I find that to be not as functionally different as, well, I mean, I'm driving home and I get home and I just pop my phone into this dock and then a nicer monitor pops up and I can do other things on that nicer monitor. Or I've plugged in a cable and I'd be able to like charge and then send information to a TV. It's so silly to think, you know, like we've kind of come at this again from a backward solution, but I have a little $30 laptop hub with Ethernet and HDMI and memory card reader and USB-A ports, and I use it most with my phones now so that I can have on-the-go kinds of compute styles if I'm plugging into a hotel room TV or if I'm just visiting family. That has functionally replaced my need for most of what I did on my laptop, and it just required a little change in my behavior there and to not be... We can be so future thinking that like a millimeter wave, zero lag, wireless point-to-point -point display setup, the kind of stuff that we're going to be talking about for virtual reality and augmented reality solutions, that's very high level stuff. That's going to take another decade to find consumer penetration where it's just an accessible technology that people understand and take for granted. And along the way, there's going to be a USB 4 cable that does all of that. And all you got to do is plug in one thing. <laughs> like, and then you're done. And I don't feel like that's such a huge barrier to entry anymore because we've actually educated consumers on how to get more out of their laptops. It's not that big a step to just take the exact same stuff that we were telling them about laptops and apply it to a phone.
That's true. We're the, all suffering dongle life. So yeah. point point made and fair point. <laughs> yeah. I, I I think think the, don't get me wrong. I have so many dumb adapters. <laughs> but, but if you spend think, some money yeah. on some okay adapters, it's not as bad. <laughs> I think the one problem is that right now, at least, you can plug in pretty much any laptop out there into a Thunderbolt compatible dock and you'll get multiple USB devices attached to it, multiple monitor outputs. But if you take any given Android phone, it's kind of a crapshoot whether or not it'll actually work with the dock of your choice. Just because, as you mentioned, one that USB 4 upcoming standard, that will enable DisplayPort alternate mode for all USB 4 cables. That'll be a standard feature of USB 4. But prior to that, it's not a standard feature manufacturers, when they're actually designing their USB ports, they actually have to make sure that the data pins are set up the right way so that the high-speed data is outputted to DisplayPort. Because of that requirement, many devices don't ship with DisplayPort alt mode support. And that's what you it, need. It's really just become to, a, premium, a, a premium phone feature, right? As long yeah. as you look up, it's got USB 3.1. Well, it's very likely it's going to support HDMI app. Well, I, I, I can't think of very yeah. many USB 3.1 phones that don't, but every Google there are so many, like the entire, <laughs> well, that's, that's it though. I mean, I can screen out on everything else and, and we can point to that as Google protecting their Chromebook investment more than I think it's a knock on USB as a standard. But then you, to your point, the entire Xiaomi catalog, it doesn't matter if you spent $150 or $1,500 on a Xiaomi all of them are USB 2. So you're, you're never going to get video out, even on your really fancy Mi 11 Ultra, which was a su supremely expensive phone. So it becomes, I think, more a consumer education issue rather than just, oh, well, it's going to be a total mystery. It's really not. With the exception of the one phone that should know better, the Pixel, everything else that I've used with 3.1 can at least get me HDMI output. Now we just need to do a better job of explaining to consumers why. And that's kind of dumb and we shouldn't have to. But again, I don't think that's such a huge stumbling block for the person who would be interested in saying like, hey, I spent over $700 on my phone. Why can't I plug it into a monitor? You know, like I feel like that's a pretty answerable question and it doesn't require so much techie weed speak that they would roll their eyes at. So I do agree that except for the Google Pixel, the vast majority of high-end Android devices with a USB 3.1 Type-C port Will support display output but the problem is that barring the big name manufacturers like samsung former lg you know, xiaomi on a few devices huawei which uh, good luck getting their device now in the us whenever you plug their device into a monitor you're just going to get a mirror of whatever's on your phone screen it's not usable in any real sense on a large display like who wants to use a giant portrait mode phone display on a 70 inch tv no one right this is where Google and app developers will really need to take things, you know, they'll need to adapt their apps and Google needs to adapt Android to better support large screen devices. So over the years, Google has attempted to cater to large screen devices with features like split screen multitasking in 5.0 and then freeform windows in 7.0 Nougat. But these features, although they launched many, many years ago, they've never really gotten many advancements in their functionality. Freeform multi-window, even though it launched in Nougat, it's still locked behind a developer option. Like it's not enabled by default on a lot of devices. You have to manually enable it. Split screen mode is getting a huge revamp in 12L. And there's also some improvements over the years that I think in 10 introduced multi-resume support so that you can actually have two apps running 
at the same time, side by side, without pausing one of them. So there's been like these incremental improvements over the years. But whenever we say like app developers need to support these features, kind of like assuming that it's easy to do. And we have an app developer here who has a lot of experience with working with multitasking features on Android. So I wanted to ask you, Brayden, what are some of the challenges and intricacies that developers have to deal with when they're trying to adapt their app to support split screen, multitasking, and or freeform? That's a great question. I think the number one issue with properly adapting apps to support these multi-window features is the activity lifecycle. So with Android, whenever there's any kind of configuration change, like for example, you rotate the screen, screen size changes, Android will actually kill and restart your activity because activities are a system level component that the operating system manages for you. Especially in the early days of Android, there wasn't really a whole lot of guidance on how to architect your apps. And so a lot of people just threw their business logic and all their data fetching and whatnot directly into the activity classes. And so then when a configuration change, like they rotate the phone or, you know, in, in this context, they resize the window. Whenever that kind of thing happens, it completely kills and restarts pretty much the entire app. Whereas nowadays, Google has come out with very clear guidance for app developers on how to architect your app to follow a more layered approach where you keep your activity classes as more entry points into the operating system. Make use of what's called the view model, where it's basically a container for all of your view-related data so that when your activity restarts, the activity can just fetch cache data from the view model. Then when the system goes and restarts your activity due to like a configuration change, like resizing a window, then your app can just continue on where it left off without much hustle. So if more app developers followed Google's guidance of architecting their app properly using this layered approach, then it will eliminate a lot of those inherent issues with the Android OS having an iron grip over your app's activity lifecycle. And it makes things like resizing windows a lot smoother. There's other tools that Google has come out with that will help you better adapt your apps to larger screen layouts. For example, Constraint Layout is a tool that Google came out with a few years back that works especially well for things like card-based UIs, like rearranging them on screen dynamically based off of the current size of your app window. Utilizing tools like that during the app development process goes a long way to increasing how reliable your app works on larger screen devices and with features like split screen, freeform windows. And as I mentioned during the episode on tablets, developers have a lot more incentive to design their apps for large screen devices this time around. Because by designing a tablet sized app, you support not only Android tablets, but also foldables. You also support devices running in desktop modes like Samsung DeX. You also support Chromebooks and you also support Windows PCs. So basically you have like a five in one approach. If you target large screen devices, you have so many more form factors available for your app to be run in. And I think that's a pretty good incentive for developers to care about adapting their apps and following these best practices for making sure their app runs not just on smartphones, but on any arbitrary aspect ratio or, or display density of a large screen device. But I mean, the, the development portion of the puzzle is just one piece. Like you also need to get buy-off from your product managers. You also need to get buy-off from your UX designers. I mean, I've been working in the corporate Android space for a lot of years now, and 
it's usually the case that like people just don't care about anything larger than Android phones. Like they just treat mobile apps as just apps that run on the handset form factory. And there's not really a whole lot of incentive that, you know, companies just don't think about that outside of maybe the content consumption space where it makes sense to have a presence on larger screen devices. But these desktop mode solutions are much more aimed for productivity than content consumption. I think if more product managers, more UX designers, you know, whoever is higher up than these developers at companies that do under development, if they can see the value in its five-in-one approach of building for larger screens targets all these other kinds of devices and unlocks all these different potentials, then the sky's the limit there. I, we need to invest more time into getting that buy-off from other stakeholders besides the developers themselves. And I think one way that you can kind of convince developers and companies to take these desktop mode experiences more seriously and actually properly adapt their apps is for companies like or in OEMs to actually show that they're willing to cater to those experiences. Because if you have a tablet optimized application and it's just running on a tablet, but there's no actual environment built around it, then you're not showing that you're taking it seriously. Like Samsung shows they take it very seriously by continuously developing and improving Bex. There are a few other desktop mode experiences made by other OEMs like Xiaomi, Huawei, LG, Huawei, Mo Motorola is most recently, they, they've come back with their own ready for approach. So I kind of want to ask Juan before he uh, signs off here, what do you think of these various OEM implementations? Like, because Google hasn't really been doing much on their own and OEMs have been stepping yeah. up. What do you think of after you, yeah. all the experience using these various um, implementations? I'll kind of combine a, a couple ideas in here too, where from the early days of DeX versus EMUI, the Huawei desktop mode, it was really encouraging to see that kind of surge of competition. We finally started getting products that resembled what previous generations had promised. And uh, for several years now, I genuinely have not traveled with a laptop. The idea of spending a lot of money on a phone often means that I can cover a trade show or visit with family and still produce extremely high quality content without having to pack thousands and thousands of dollars worth of camera equipment and a $3,000 gaming laptop with a beefy GPU. I mean, you know, I'm happy to spend $1,200 for a phone if that reduces my load when I'm going out to travel. And desktop modes have been a pretty significant aspect of that. You know, it's, it takes a, a somewhat significant change in your behavior, but really putting the practicality of how all these things work and how they all fit together and some of the accessories that have vastly improved the experience, it's hard to pretend that the situation as it stands now hasn't improved significantly, but I'm also somewhat pessimistic. I really feel that the move from Android 12L to Android 13 and all of this talk of better support for tablets is likely coming at a time where... Android 12L represents a conversation about how the only viable Android tablet was a Samsung Galaxy Tab. And one of the major selling points of a Galaxy Tab was you don't have to use Android on a larger screen, you can use DeX. And that to me made way more sense. Android is not a great system for using a larger slab of screen. And now here comes DeX with a more traditional computer style interface. And man, all of a sudden, now we can talk about a completely different type of productivity on a premium tier Android tablet. But as we've seen, you know, like Samsung not putting DeX into a Z Flip. If Samsung gets enough sales data that they can sell expensive devices without having to front the development costs of incorporating this additional kind of software, 
And Android 12L does a better job of encouraging tablet sales because now the touch interface is better for split screening and multitasking. I could see where a major company's focus on trying to improve the desktop mode is going to radically plummet. Why keep supporting an expensive development piece of our operating system in the one UI skin and all of the under code that has to go into managing that interface? If people are generally happy buying a Galaxy phone and a Galaxy tab to do what their Galaxy phone could have done all by itself, I don't feel the economy, the economics of that makes sense for them to disrupt their own product lines. I feel like this is a better initiative for them to support saying like, hey, we just want a better tablet UI. Isn't that what everybody wants? And then if you want to step up, you can get a Samsung notebook or a Samsung Windows PC. And now Samsung's relationship with Microsoft is kept healthy. And then Google, their relationship with Acer and Asus and all of these Chromebook manufacturers, well, they're kept happy. And now we have clearer divisions between phone and tablet and laptop and desktop again, even though we're kind of just replicating the same processing power between all of those devices now that so many are moving over into ARM style SOCs or big little core configurations. So unless consumers really start to care and kind of get ahead of the curve, not just waiting for a handful of enthusiasts to just show things off, unless we can kind of push that and we can show that it monetizes, then really we're going to see the interest from the manufacturers settle down and eventually degrade. And I think it's sad because it's also coming at a time where we're seeing so many more areas around the world internationally stepping up to 5G adoption. Someone's only computer might be the phone that sits in their pocket. And they might not have the luxury of owning these multiple devices like we might in a more privileged economy. And now we might be taking those kinds of tools away from them. It makes sense for a DeX user to buy a $100 display and a $30 Bluetooth keyboard and mouse because every time they might need to upgrade their phone, their computer is upgraded too. Well, now we might take that away because really what they should own is a phone and a laptop or a phone and a tablet. And so that's the concern I have right now. I'm not that optimistic, and especially seeing what little progress has been made on the Android desktop mode, how little refinement really has been brought to DeX over the last two generations. There isn't any solid advertising or competition against Samsung, especially in North America. And we've been in a holding pattern. Our accessories have gotten much better. The processing power is there and no one really seems all that much interested. So I think it's something that's probably on its way out. So thank you very much, Juan, for joining us on the show. I know you got to run like right now, but right before you go, yeah, can I you got, just I give us a, And I'm sorry to leave on a bummer. Just, ah. Can you just give us a quick uh, outro? Like tell us where people can find you and yeah, so on. Yeah, sure. So I'm Juan Bagnell at some gadget guy all across the socials. I do telecom editorials for reviews.org. You can find me soon talking up uh, some of the shopping and deals on slick deals. We're going to talk about how to save some cash. Maybe you don't need the latest and greatest if you can get by with a refurb or a last generation model or a really good coupon code. And then I, I just, again, uh, anytime you catch me on a podcast or a stream, I'm usually the cranky guy going, but I want to do more with my phone. And then I'm. I, I go and cry in a cult corner and sulk when cool toys are taken away from me. So <laughs> that's kind of the gig. <laughs> but thank you so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks, Juan. Catch you later. Yeah, thank you. And uh, Braden, I actually had one more question about Android's built-in desktop mode, which I'm sure many people have heard of, was added in Android 10. If you look in the developer options, there's a button that says enable force desktop mode. And what happens when you do that is there's a 
very bare bones desktop launcher activity that is launched whenever you connect your device to an external display, but because it's so bare bones, it's pretty much useless. But you made an app called Taskbar that existed before this desktop mode came about, but you adapted it to support desktop mode. Can you tell us how Android's desktop mode works and how you were able to take advantage of it with Taskbar? For sure, yeah. So desktop mode has its roots in the freeform window mode that debuted in Android 7.0 Nougat. And the way that freeform window mode was implemented, it took kind of like the virtual desktop approach where like if, if you launched a window, the whole rest of the Android UI would just disappear and then you would see this floating window kind of in its own environment. And the app I developed, Taskfire, my idea was, okay, let's fill in some of that blank space with traditional PC style UI and whatnot and, and an easy way to launch those apps in freeform window mode. Later on, Android implemented NAOSP support for this bare bones stock desktop mode, which the way they've implemented it under the hood is there's something called a windowing mode, where basically each display that an Android device knows about, whether it's like the built-in phone display or the next child display, each display has its own windowing mode. And when a phone is connected to an external monitor, it recognizes, oh, it's, it's on an external monitor. Let's set the windowing display to freeform. And so that's what happens when you have that developer option enabled. Another thing that happens is the default launcher that's set on your phone, it will launch an activity that is under the category of secondary home. The category home is reserved for the launcher app that you have set as default on your phone, but there's also this concept of a secondary home that they introduced in Android 10, and that is the activity that will launch on your external display. So that Marabone's stock desktop mode is actually coming from Launcher 3, which is the AOSP default launcher. And if you happen to have a custom launcher set on your phone that implements that secondary home activity, because the Android OS has opened it up to third-party apps to support that secondary home category for an activity, it will then launch that activity instead in desktop mode. But for an app like Taskbar, the app was originally designed not necessarily to replace your default launcher. It was meant to overlay on top of whatever apps you're currently running. It operated as like a side menu kind of thing where you can just expand the app list out as needed. You know, and also tied into the freeform window implementation from Nougat, where it was in its own space. But for desktop mode, the way that Google launches that secondary home activity, it's tied to your default launcher. And so I needed to find a way to hook Taskbar into that without being too disruptive to the user's normal phone experience. I mean, if a user sets Taskbar as their default launcher on their phone, like you'd be forced to use that experience on your phone instead of your preferred default launcher, which could be Nova or stock pixel launcher or whatever. And so I came up with a way to kind of work around that where basically you set Taskbar as your default launcher and then inside Taskbar settings, you, okay, what's your real preferred launcher that you want to do? When you press the home button, Taskbar technically launch on your phone, but then it will just immediately launch your preferred launcher, whether it's Pixel Launcher or Nova or whatever. And so that way Taskbar still has those permissions to display its desktop mode activity on the screen when you plug it in. So that kind of replicates the Samsung Dex style of, oh, you can still use your phone normally while still having like this separate uh, freeform window environment on your external display that you can launch apps in floating windows and whatnot. 
So, Braden, before you go, I have one question because this has always deviled me about the Android freeform window and multi-window and really, let's say, multitasking kind of flow. Android as an operating system was designed for, let's not say homogenous, but for single pane activities from the get-go, one task, one application in foreground, even getting two apps to actually update the interface at the same time was a big new feature when Google introduced that. I don't remember what version it was, but that was something where whenever somebody would say, oh, why can't they just make an Android laptop? You'd be like, well, there are a lot of good reasons for that. Number one of which is it would behave nothing like the way you would expect a Windows windowed environment to behave. Now that we have the ability to run multiple tasks at once or simultaneously, I should say, and now it's reform, granted adoption is very poor because none of these apps were designed to be resized on the fly. That is probably a very big architectural undertaking for the interface of a lot of these apps to adapt very well to that versus just kind of work with resizing, which is how it seems to be with most of them, quite honestly. I guess that, which all you said, you have this now five-in-one value scenario for developers where they can develop for a multitude of platforms. Brandon, what do you think then, as far as Android's actual functionality, and I'm talking as low level as we want to go here, what is stopping it from having that truly multimodal experience you might get on a Mac operating system or a Windows operating system, or even a more sophisticated Linux distro, where truly... You know, you can tell the interface was designed from the ground up for this multi-window, on-the-fly resizing, multiple activities happening at once, lots of background information being brought in. What about Android either does or doesn't make it a good candidate for that sort of workflow? I think going back to adopting best practices, like as app developers, goes a long way. It's kind of interesting, like when Android came out with that multi-resume functionality, the thing that immediately came to my head was, well, yeah, they did that because app developers weren't properly honoring the on-resume callback of the activity lifecycle, where they should have been honoring the on-start callback of the activity lifecycle. And it felt like kind of a cop-out to app developers there. Another thing that comes to mind is these newer frameworks that Google has come out with, Jetpack Compose and also Flutter. These frameworks are designed to be cross-platform. And in Jetpack Compose's case, you know, it's the new preferred UI framework for Android apps. And theoretically, you could develop an app that would run on traditional desktop operating systems like Windows, Mac, or Linux, and then using the same business logic and a lot of the same UI components could easily port it over to Android. And I think if more people start using these UI frameworks that are being targeted more towards cross-platform use, I could see someone writing a traditional desktop application, you know, a productivity-focused desktop application in Jetpack Compose or in Flutter, porting it over to Android, maybe with a simplified user interface for phones, but then still showing that fully fledged desktop style interface for larger screen devices and for devices in freeform window mode and desktop mode. I really do think it comes down to the app developers pulling their weight. Google and especially Samsung, the OEMs, they've done a lot internally to support this infrastructure. They've done a lot of upfront work to set things up for success there for desktop mode, and it's up to the app developers to pull their weight a little bit more there. Very interesting. And uh, we know how it goes with Android app devs and needing to introduce new UI features. So I look forward to this in six to seven years. We'll see. We'll see if it actually happens, but <laughs> you can only hope. Well, uh, I thank you very much, Brayden, for joining us. And 
offering your expertise on how Android's multitasking features work, as well as how you implemented desktop mode support into Taskbar, as well as explaining how desktop mode itself works. As you all just heard, Braden is the developer of Taskbar, but you may not know where you can find him if you want to follow his work. So Braden, where can people follow you? Yeah, catch me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is atfarbb1. And you can also catch me on GitHub. All my personal projects are open source. You can follow my developments there on GitHub slash barbb. Thanks so much for joining us, Braden. This is an area where there are still precious few experts when it comes to multitasking on Android. And it's really interesting just to see, A, how much work has to go in, and B, also kind of the evolution and where Google has been toying with this, because that is how I would describe Google's efforts today. They're really giving a strong consideration to the idea of multimodal computing on Android as a platform, but it seems like there's still so many unanswered questions that developers will have to answer. So this has been Android Bytes, powered by Esper. You know, I usually do a plug about how Esper relates to our weekly subject matter. This week, when it comes to multi-mode computing in Android, it's obviously interesting for us because at Esper, we're on displays anywhere from 5 inches to 85 inches. It's not really an issue for us in terms of necessarily multitasking, but the way apps look on these large format displays is very much a concern for our customers and something that they have to contend with on devices and where they have to be adapted oftentimes to specific devices, resolutions, display layouts, input methods, whatever it may be. So if you're in this space and you're wondering, okay, I have an Android app or I'm developing an app for a device that I'm creating, what should I know about split scanning in Android? What should I know about multi-resume? What should I know about running multiple apps at the same time, which is what that means? Or what should I know about upcoming features related to folding or anything that could be leveraged on those larger formats? Get in touch with us. Like I said, we're on so many different form factors, everything from a walkie-talkie that doesn't even have a screen but still runs Android, all the way up to a huge television that's being used as display signage. So we're really interested in these novel form factors because that's when Esper tends to come into play because most of the devices we're on either don't move or if they do, they're in some kind of big box or there's some kind of strange handheld. And they're not the kind of typical displays you would probably see for most apps on Android because most of the devices we run on are actually tablets. So there are a lot of development concerns that are probably happening there. A lot of companies deciding what to do with devices. Should I have two app experiences or one to enable my use case on that device? There are probably valid technical considerations for both approaches. Features that you could leverage by having two apps versus one that you couldn't if you decided to go with that single app approach. If this is resonating with you, if these are the kinds of questions you're asking, get in touch with us. We're at esper.io. You can book a demo or reach out to me or Michelle on Twitter. I'm rdrv3. Michelle is at Michelle Roman. And we're happy to talk to you. And if necessary, or if you just want to talk to somebody at Esper, we are happy to connect you to have those discussions. So thank you for joining us, everyone. And we'll catch you next time.